Amen. Turn in your Bibles, please, to Joshua chapter 3. The book of Joshua is the sixth book in the Bible, in the Old Testament. This is the account of, of God leading the Israelites into the promised land under the leadership of Joshua. And so we've begun a series recently through the book of Joshua, and it's brought us to chapter 3 this morning. As you're finding that, uh, just think with me um, just about history, I guess, or events. There are certain events in the life of a nation that are important to remember, right? Events or things that are really nation-defining, history-altering for a group of people. And many of you are better historians than I am, but as I was thinking about even America, what events were um, significant in our, in our history, um, things like July 4th, Washington crossing the Potomac, December 7th, 1941, D-Day, or even 9-11, right, just to name a few. These are significant events that have really shaped our history, and likewise, there were significant events in Israel's history, and that's what we're going to see today. We're going to see God bring about a significant event in fulfillment of promises that he's given to the nation of Israel. God has promised Joshua and the Israelites that he is with them, and he's promised that he will deliver the Canaanite nations that they're about to go into, that he will deliver those nations into their hands and give them the land that God promised to their forefathers centuries earlier, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so for that to happen, for Israel to get the land, for them to even go into the land and start to drive out the nations, they first must cross the mighty Jordan River during its flood season. And whenever you can, please bring up that that slide. We'll see uh, kind of a little um, geography there. So they're starting off over there on the right in in the city of Shittim. And they're heading over, they're going to, they have to cross the Jordan River, and they're going to end up in Gilgal, and eventually then in chapter 6 to Jericho. So there's more on that map than we need today, but I just wanted you to see kind of the geography there. So our text today is chapters 3 and 4, and it's the account of them doing just that, of, of, the, of Israel crossing the Jordan River. And if you wanted to break it down just to understand, we'll we'll go through the chapters fairly quickly. Chapter 3 records them actually crossing the the Jordan, the the monumental event, the miracle of God parting the the Jordan River for them to cross. That's in chapter 3. And then chapter 4 is about them memorializing that event, remembering that event. So we want to consider the text today under two headings. As I thought about application for us today, if you're taking notes, it'll be very simple. Just two main points. Number one, I called experiencing God's grace and power. Experiencing God's grace and power, that's going to correlate with chapter three. And then number two, I called remembering God's grace and power. Remembering God's grace and power, and that will correlate with chapter 4. 
So first we have experiencing God's grace and power as we dive into chapter 3. In verse 1, Joshua leads the nation of Israel right up to the Jordan River. Look with me at the text. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim, and they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. So again, Joshua and the whole nation has come right up now to the edge of the Jordan River. On the other side of that river is the land that God has promised to them. But again, how are they going to get across that? They haven't been told exactly how that's going to happen yet. And just to pick, have, have it in your mind's eye, at this season, the Jordan River is no little babbling brook, right? This isn't just about, oh, let's kind of you know, hike up our pants and kind of wade through this, right? No. Um, verse 15 tells us that this is the season when it overflows, when it's, it's flooding. It's, this is springtime, when the spring rains have come and the snow melt has come and it causes the Jordan to overflow its banks, So at this time, Jordan is a fast-flowing, swirling river, probably 10 to 12 feet deep. And keep in mind, it's not just some soldiers that need to cross. We're talking about the nation of Israel. We're talking about women, children, animals, supplies. They all need to cross the Jordan River. In verse 2, we're going to see that there's a three-day pause They get right up to the edge of the river, and then God has them wait three days. And we don't know exactly why, but perhaps God just wanted them to stare at that mighty, raging river for three days to let the reality sink in for them that, hey, there is no way on our own we can get across this thing. And that human impossibility is going to highlight the glory of what God's about to do. Look at verse 2 then. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, As soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Verse 5, then Joshua said to the people, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priests, take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. So you see, um, Joshua, through his officers, is giving Israel the final instructions before they cross the Jordan. And I don't know if you noticed the, the key role that the Ark of the Covenant is going to play in, in the crossing of the Jordan here. And so you, just to remind us, what is that, right? Well, the Ark of the Covenant contained three symbols that were, were very significant to, uh, concerning Israel and their relationship with God. It had the tablets of the Ten Commandments. It had the rod of Aaron that had budded. It had a jar of manna to remind them how God had provided for them in the wilderness. But even more important for us to realize than than what's in the ark is just that the ark itself symbolized God's very presence. Remember, that was what was significant about the nation of Israel at this time is that God had made this covenant with them and he had promised that he was going to be with them in a special way. He would be their God, they would be his people, and the ark symbolized that. So whenever they saw the ark, it was like a, a picture, a reminder, God is with us. God is right here in the midst of us. And so the priests 
we see, we read here that the priests carry the ark before the people, right? You know, so they're all seeing this. And then they head for the river, the priests do, and the people are to follow. And so you see God's very presence is leading them, guiding them, and the people are to follow him. And they're to stay about a half mile behind it. And it says for, so they can see which way to go for reasons of visibility. But perhaps also they're, it was a reminder to them of just the holiness of God, right? Because again, the ark, of, the ark symbolized God's presence and, and the fact that they're not all just running up next to it, right? You know, touching it. We know no one was supposed to touch it, right? They carried it with poles. That was a reminder to them that God is a holy God. And they, are, they like all of us, are sinful people. And, and, and they're, no, no sinful person is allowed in God's presence without atonement for sin being made through blood sacrifice, So you can just try to picture this. The ark has gone before them. Uh, it's preparing to head toward the river, to head into the river. But notice verse 5 said they are to consecrate themselves. Consecrate means to sanctify, to set apart. The, the sacredness of what is about to happen is being emphasized here. Uh, we've seen the same command to consecrate yourself back in Exodus chapter 19. And that's when the first generation of, of Israelites, God was making the covenant with them. And they were told to consecrate themselves. And, and back then, it, it, and back in that passage, it specifically said, hey, that means you're to wash your garments and, and prepare your hearts and, and renew your dependence upon God. So that's what they're being called to do here as well. God's about to do an awesome thing in their midst, so they are to be dedicated to God in submission. They're to be following him. They're renewing their commitment to him. They're having their eyes fixed on the symbol of his presence. Interesting. One commentator I read pointed out this principle, and I, I thought it was powerful, and so I pass it on to you. God does his wonders for people who are consecrated to him. God does his wonders for people who are consecrated to him. Now as we go into verse 7, we see God speaks to Joshua in verses 7 and 8. And then Joshua repeats those instructions to the people in verses 9 through 13. Verse 7, the Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. As for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. Verse 9, and Joshua said to the people, come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. It's like now he's passing on these commandments to them, these instructions to them. Uh, you know, verse 7 and 8 was kind of a summary. No doubt God said more to him than what's recorded for us here. And we see some of that being elaborated on now. In verses 10 and following, and Joshua said, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing before, over before you into the Jordan. Now therefore take twelve men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth shall rest in the waters of the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. So now they're hearing what's going to happen, right? 
The peop- and then he also gives this instruction. The people are to select one man from each of the 12 tribes, and we're going to find out why later in chapter 4. But then they are to prepare to follow the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant. Put yourself in the shoes of the priests for a moment, right? <laughs> the priests with the Ark are leading the way, and they are to step into the raging waters. And when they do, the water will stop flowing and be piled up in a great heap. But we see why God is doing this, right? This is, this is about so much more than just, hey, I need to get you guys from point A to point B, right? No, he tells us that he has a dual purpose for this miracle he's about to perform. First, in verse 7, it was to exalt Joshua in the eyes of the people. God wants to confirm before all the people that Joshua is his chosen man to lead them. That just as God was with Moses, so he is with Joshua, right? And that's significant. We've talked about that kind of as we first entered into this series that, wow, you know, Moses had been their leader for 40 plus years and now he's gone. And now they're about to to go into, yes, the promised land, but that's going to involve waging war with all these nations. They need to be firmly behind their leader. And so God was going to use this to exalt Joshua in their eyes. A second purpose we saw in verse 10. Did you catch that? Why is God doing this? Why is he doing this miracle for them in this way of crossing the Jordan? Verse 10, that is so that Israel knows that the living God is among them and that he will drive out all the nations that they are about to face. That's an important lesson, isn't it? That's a lesson they need to know, that they need to to remember, have fixed firmly in their hearts. Again, God could have brought Israel to the Jordan during the dry season, right? He could have done that. (laughs) And then it would have been easier to cross, right? But he intentionally, as he often does, chose this improbable time. Why? To show his glory, to teach them, to teach his people to trust him. Right? He brings his people to an end in their abilities, an end in their strength, so that we will trust him. God wants them to know that he is with them. And unlike the gods of the nations that they will be facing, the Lord is the living God. Just like we saw Rahab confess last week, right? That the Lord, Yahweh, is God of heaven and earth. And he's going to drive out all the all those nations, all the, all their, he's going to defeat all those so-called gods of the Canaanite nations. What a good reminder for us, by the way, that God has a purpose in what he is doing. He always does, doesn't he? And even though that involves trials, and even though that involves God not working according to our timetable on things, right? We know that God is in control and that he has a loving purpose behind it he's teaching us he's growing us for his glory he's showing us who he is he's teaching us and causing us to depend on him well 
So now as we come to verse 14, they've been told what's going to happen. There's some buildup. There's some anticipation. And now the time has come. In verses 14 through 17, this is them actually crossing the Jordan. Look at verse 14. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water... Here's where it says, now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest. The waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarethan. And those flowing down toward the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off. And the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. And all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. Consider the courage again of the priests, right, as they move toward the raging river, stepping in. Right? They had to do so in faith. They'd been told what's going to happen, but, it, but they had to do it. I'm sure they might have been thinking, am I going to be swept away in this current? But they pressed on by God's grace in faith and obedience. And as soon as they put their feet in the water, the promised miracle occurred. Verse 16 says, the water coming from above stood up in a great heap at the city of Adam. You see that way up there. It's like 15 to 20 miles north. Can you imagine that? All this water just like got rolled back and piled up up there. And then the water going downstream into the Dead Sea, which is also called the Salt Sea, it's cut off. So I'm just picturing God puts some kind of, I'm mean, obviously it's flowing down anyways, but God puts some barrier up so that the water doesn't just start, you know, falling backwards into the spot that has been left, Right? The point is God powerfully made the waters retreat and created a super wide crossing for the whole nation of Israel and they crossed on dry ground. What a display of God's power. I was reminded of Psalm 104 which celebrates, O Lord my God, you are very great. And it starts talking about his his acts in creation, his provision for for his creation. And again, this is talking about the original creation, but it it applies to this situation as well, right? He set the earth on its foundations, verse 5, so that it should never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke, they fled the waters. At the sound of your thunder, they took to flight. The mountains rose, the valleys sunk down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass. He did the same thing here. God said, water, get up there. (laughs) Pile up there. What a display of God's power. He gathered the water so much so that the very moisture from the ground was taken away. It's not like they were trunching through in the mud, getting stuck. No, they went through on dry ground. It reminded me of what the disciples would say years later when the Son of God performed a miracle. Even the wind and the waves obey him. 
And again, I want us to consider chapter 3 under this heading of experiencing God's grace and power. They were experiencing it. They were seeing a miracle. What a display of God's power. What a display of God's grace. Right? We have a saying, oh, he he would move heaven and earth for, for whatever, right? Well, here's God moving water for his people to provide for them, to fulfill his promises to them. God, the creator and ruler of all the earth, is with them. He is in their midst. He has covenanted with them. They are his people. He will provide for them. He will guide them. He will fight for them. If I was an Israelite going through that and reflecting back on that, I think we'd have to say, who are we, Lord? Who are we that you would do this? Are you doing this for other nations? No, who are we? That we get to be your people. On that day, every Israelite knew that the Lord was the one true living God and that he was for them. They were experiencing God's grace and power. What about you today? Do you want to experience God's grace and power? And as I was asking that, Some might, whether you'd say it or whether you just act like it, you're like, no, no, I'm good. I don't need that. Maybe you believe that you can just get through life on your own strength. Maybe you think you don't need God's grace, that you're going to, so many people think, I'm just going to make it on my own. I'm going to go through life my own way. Right? I mean, I, I hear these kinds of things all the time. You know, I mean, when, when we do workout videos, I hear people saying, the, the instructors saying these things, you know, they're not only just teaching us physical exercises, they're trying to coach us. They're like, just get a little better every day, you know, just have a positive attitude, just do this, just do that. And I mean, there's some nuggets of truth in there through a biblical worldview, but people think they don't need God, they can just get through life on their own. Unbelievers, it's true, can accomplish significant things. We know it's by God's common grace, whether they acknowledge it or not. Unbelievers can learn, to, they can learn discipline. They can learn to have a positive attitude. They can decide to make the world a better place. Again, they, they wouldn't acknowledge it, but it's God who's enabling them to do that anyways. But maybe in their mind, they think, I'm doing this on my own. And maybe someone here today thinks they can do it on their own. But I'm here to tell you from God's word, there are some things that unbelievers can't do. Yeah, you can have a positive attitude. Yeah, you can try and make the world a better place. But there are some things that you can't do on your own. Unbelievers, people who are not Christians, cannot know assurance of God's help through trials. Unbelievers cannot set themselves free from bondage to sin. Unbelievers cannot make themselves right with God. Unbelievers cannot find true satisfaction for their soul. Unbelievers cannot secure eternal life. And so unbelievers cannot have a confident hope and peace. We all need God's grace and power in our lives. 
And so if there's any here today who thought you could do, do life without God, maybe it's a young person, you, you come because your family makes you come, but, but you're like, man, this is not for me. As soon as I can, I'm out on my own. I don't need this. I'll, I'll just live life my way. Friend, that's not going to work. You need God's grace and power. You need God's grace and power to change your life now. And you need God's grace and power to guarantee paradise in the life to come. Okay, and now here's an important follow-up point to this. God's grace and power are found one place. Jesus Christ. You only experience God's grace and power through Jesus Christ. God is abounding in grace, and his grace flows to all who are united to Christ. I was reminded of the doxology that, that we studied in Sunday school last Sunday in Ephesians 1.3. Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And then he starts rattling them off, right? In Christ we have new life, eternal life. In Christ we have forgiveness of sins. In Christ we have redemption, which is freedom from sin's ruling power. In Christ we have peace with God and adoption into his family. In Christ we have the sure hope of resurrection and being with God forever. In Christ we know that God loves us and that he is working all things together for our good and his glory, our good being Becoming more like Christ, knowing him more. All that comes to us in Christ. God's grace and power are experienced in Christ. So if you want God's grace and power in your life, and you do need it, run to Christ. Run to Christ by faith. Admit you are a sinner and trust in him as your savior. Forsake your rebellion. Commit to Christ as your Lord. And then Christians today, this is a good reminder for us as well. We have, God's grace and power has been lavished on us and he continues to show us new mercies every day. But let us still have that attitude of, God, I need you. I need your grace. I need your power in my life. Because even as Christians, we too can fall into this, um, what do you call it, doing things in my own strength, right? This pride, this, this self-assurance. No. May we not get that way. Let us still long for God's grace and power. Let us still declare our need for God's grace and power. God is not stingy with his grace. Again, he has lavished so much on us already, but I think there's a lot more to be had. But too often we're like a baby who won't nurse, right? Some of you have had those. We've had those, right? A baby who won't nurse. And then it's like, why are you not growing, right? Well, there's, there's supply there for you. You're not taking advantage of it. And as Christians, there's grace for us as well. There's strength, grace, strength to grow, opportunities to serve. 
but too often we don't abide in Christ. And so we're not growing like we should. So let us experience God's grace and power in our lives. Let us daily abide in Christ through the means of grace, through word, prayer, worship, body of Christ, serving him. That was point number one, experiencing God's grace and power. And and again, in a national, physical sense, Israel has just done that in chapter three, haven't they? And so now as we move into chapter four, we have our second heading, remembering God's grace and power. I mean, this is a, a huge event for them, right? I mean, for one, this awesome miracle has just been done for them. But then remember what's happening. They, for 40 plus years, they've been wandering in the wilderness. And then for 400 years prior to that, their ancestors were in Egypt. But now finally, after all those years, they have set foot in the promised land. They've set foot in the land of Canaan. And God has brought them there by a mighty display of his power, piling up the the Jordan River into this large heap so that the nation could cross on dry ground. So this is significant, and God wants them to remember this day, to remember this amazing miracle that God worked on their behalf, to remember the lessons that this miracle was to teach them, right, that we talked about earlier. And so that's what chapter 4 is about. It's about memorializing this event. And so the chapter divides nicely into two sections, verses 1 through 14. It's interesting as you trace it, and I'll I'll point it out a little bit later, so just trust me for now. But chapters 1 through 14, it's like it's, it's talking about how they're to memorialize it, but it's also showing the progression of them actually going into the river and crossing the river, right? There's some repetition from before. But then once you get to chapter 15, it's like, now it's still talking about memorializing it, but now it's like they've come out of the river, right? Now... The language is is talking about them being on the other side. So it makes for a nice chapter break, I guess you'd say, in it. So look with me quickly at chapter 4. When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Take twelve men from the people from each tribe and command them, saying, Take twelve stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you and lay them down in the place where you lodged tonight. Then Joshua called the twelve, by the way, again, uh, way up in verse 1, that the Hebrew could be translated, now the Lord had said. So, you know, if you're trying to figure out, now what's the timing on all this? It could be talking about, God had already told him to do this, right? But now it's, it's going to, now it's, it's coming to, to pass. Uh, verse 4, then Joshua called the twelve men from the people of Israel whom he had appointed, a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder according to the number of tribes of the people of Israel that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in time, what do these stones mean? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off, so these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. 
Verse 8, and the people of Israel did just as Joshua commanded and took up 12 stones out of the midst of the Jordan according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel just as the Lord had told Joshua and they carried them over with them to the place where they lodged and laid them down there and Joshua set up 12 stones in the midst of the Jordan in the place where the feet of the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant had stood and they are there to this day. For the priests bearing the Ark stood in the midst of the Jordan until everything was finished that the Lord commanded Joshua to tell the people according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua. So do you, do you get a picture of what's happening now? It's like we're going back to them actually crossing. Remember, the priests are right there in the middle of the Jordan. They're on the dry riverbank with the ark. All the people are passing by. And the, the men who've been chosen earlier, Joshua is saying, as you pass by, I want you guys, each one of you men, take a, a stone from the middle of that dry riverbank Take a stone that just moments earlier was covered by 12 feet of water. I want you to take a stone with you, okay? And set it up right there by the priests. And as you try to make sense of this passage, that seems to be what happened first as they, they set them up right there by the priests as the people passed by. And then later those stones were moved over onto the bank and that's where they ultimately were going to be. Um, because it was on the bank, on the west side there, where this memorial would, would be for years to come. Verse 9 is a little confusing. It kind of makes it sound like there's maybe two sets of stones. Like maybe there's the one set that does get set up on, on the, the, the bank, and then there's another set that's there at the riverbed. We're not sure. It could be. It could be that they left a set there. Or it could The way the Hebrew is, it could just be that... Again, it was placed there first and then moved. You say, well, why would there be uh, an altar there in the middle? You know, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I, I guess if it stayed in place and then during dry season it would, it would go down and they could maybe see it and, and uh, remember it that way. But I tend to lean toward the fact that it's one pile of stones. They got stacked in the middle, then they got moved to the, to the bank Ultimately, it doesn't matter. The point is, what we see in this passage in the verses I've already read, they're obeying God. God is, is saying, it's very important that you remember this and that you take steps to remember this. And they're like, absolutely, we will obey so that we remember. I think we left off in verse 11. The people passed, or the end of verse 10, that paragraph, the people passed over in haste, verse 11, and when all the people had finished passing over the ark of the Lord and the priests passed over before the Lord, the sons of Reuben, the sons of Gad, the half-tribe of Manasseh passed over armed before the people of Israel as Moses had told them, about 40,000 ready for war passed over before the Lord for battle to the plains of Jericho. On that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel and they stood in awe of him just as they had stood in awe of Moses all the days of his life. Those verses, again, are talking about their obedience, but it's talking about the fulfillment, right? Remember um, uh, what God had said. Hey, uh, he, through Joshua, he had commanded these other tribes. We talked about that a few weeks ago, that we're going to stay on the east of the Jordan. They, their men needed to come over, help fight with their brothers. Those guys obeyed. They, they, they came over. But then God has been telling them in chapter 1, chapter 3, I'm going to exalt you, Joshua, in the eyes of the people. And sure enough, he did. That's the point of those verses, really, is showing just the fulfillment of what God has laid out. Now in verse 15, this is the break. Now we have it as them, the focus is on them coming out on the other side. 
Verse 15, and the Lord said to Joshua, command the priest bearing the ark of the testimony to come up out of the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priest, come up out of the Jordan. And when the priest bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord came up from the midst of the Jordan, and the soles of the priest's feet were lifted up on dry ground, the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all its banks as before. The people came up out of the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month, and they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of, of Jericho. So you can see there, over there, wherever Gilgal is, right? And those 12 stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, When your children ask their fathers in times to come, What do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know, Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you, for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. One quick comment before we talk about the memorial itself. It's interesting, by the way, this all takes place, there, there's like an echo here of what happened for the for the previous generation, right? The previous generation had a similar miracle, right? The parting of the Red Sea. And, and here it's even referenced. Well, and I've lost what verse it was in, but when it talks about what verse they came up out of, that's the, that's the same, or sorry, when it talks about what day they came, that all this was happening, that's the same day as, as the beginning of Passover. So again, God in his sovereignty is orchestrating all of this. When the, water, when the river was flooding to show his glory, to, in time, to time it just right with Passover so that they would link the two and say, wow, you know, this, this is our big time redemption event, so to speak, right? This is God, just like God worked in previous generations for our forefathers, he's working for us now. But then at the end of the chapter, you see God explaining why they need to have this memorial, right? It's like he's saying, in years to come, you guys are going to travel to Gilgal. Maybe we'll set up a national park there or something, right? And as you travel there, there'll be this memorial. And, and, and when your son says, hey, Dad, what are all those stones piled up there for? Then that's your opportunity to tell him. Tell him what God has done. Tell them how God miraculously parted the water and drove it back as far as Adam. And that we passed through on dry ground. And that it was a reminder to us that God is with us. And that the, the Lord is the true God. The Lord of heaven and earth. What a, what a reminder for them. In the Old Testament we see God placed a lot of importance on his people remembering what God had done for them. Right? There's several sacrifices, festivals, most notably the Passover, to remind and teach how God redeemed them from bondage in Egypt through his mighty hand. And now these stones would be a reminder of how God powerfully parted the waters of the Jordan, letting the nation cross on dry ground en route to God delivering the Canaanites into their hands. And so I close with, with this um, principle for us. Again, this heading, remembering God's grace and power. It's important for us as well, right? It's important for us to remember God's grace and power in our lives. Why? 
Well, every day we face trials that can cause us to to fear or despair, don't we? And every day we face temptations to cherish and pursue the things of the world rather than pursuing Christ. Every day we're tempted to place our trust and hope our trust and hope in something other than God. Every day we are tempted to complain and be discontent, aren't we? Every day we're tempted to look down on others or hold grudges. And so for that and a myriad other reasons, that's why God calls us to remember. Remember the power and grace that he has shown us through Christ. Remember how Jesus has suffered and died in your place. Remember how God has set his love on you before the foundation of the world. Remember, loved ones, how the Spirit gave you new life and now lives inside of you. What grace, what power that he's made us new creations. Remember how God has, how God has faithfully provided all that you need. Remember God's precious promises to you. Promises to never leave you or forsake you. Promises to work all things together for your good and his glory. Promises that you will be with him forever because of what Christ has done for you. Promise that he is making all things new. We need to remember these promises because we're bombarded with, with the bad news of this fallen world, aren't we? And so we need to set our minds on the truth and remember God's grace. That's already been shown to us and his his grace that is still to come that he's promised to us. As Christians, we need to be intentional then about remembering God's grace and power to us. What, What does that look like? A couple of quick ideas. Keep a journal. Keep a journal of praises. Keep a journal of answered prayers. Keep a journal of God's promises. So that we can review it often, so that we can set our minds on it, so that we can meditate and remind those promises. Just like we read in our scripture reading, we need to be stirred up. We need to be reminded, right? The Bible is not just something, oh, I read it once and now I know what's in it and I don't know. We need to constantly be fixing our eyes on, the, on that truth, on those promises. So keep a journal. Families, I encourage you to find creative ways to celebrate God's grace, right? We all... In addition to the gospel, we all have stories of how God's provided for us, right? You know, I mean, the very dining room table that we sit at was given to us by our previous church, or by the small group that we were in in our previous church, right? You know, we've got stories about how God's helped us through medical things and all that, right? We need to, I'm convicted about this, we need to be telling our kids about those things, right? Telling our kids about answers to prayer, telling our kids about things, the way God has provided for us in the past so that we can be stirring up and cultivating faith in them and encouraging our own faith. And then, then of course, the, the best way, the, the way that Christ has given us by his grace to remember is what we're ready to do now. And that's to take the Lord's Supper. What a precious gift that is. Remember, Jesus said that we do this in remembrance of him. And so as we take the bread, we remember how Jesus, the, the, the eternal Son of God, became a man, lived a perfect life, and died in his body on the cross to give us eternal life. And as we take the cup, we remember his blood that was shed for us, that washes away all our sins. And so just as the Israelites were told to do, parents, I encourage you, use the Lord's Supper as a teaching tool with your kids around the dinner table tonight. Or maybe on the drive home, 
Explain what the elements symbolize. Explain to them why you don't let them participate in it until they come to faith in Christ publicly identifying with him. God may use those times to bring faith to your kids. And we pray that he does. So if the men could come forward, please, who are going to serve us the Lord's Supper. The Lord's table is open to anyone who has placed their faith in Christ, who is who's not cherishing unconfessed, unrepentant sin in their life. If you don't know the Lord today, we would just ask that you just let the, the elements pass by. And as the, as the elements are passed by, use this as a chance to um, confess any known sin to the Lord. But use it as a chance to just remember God's grace. Think about God's grace. Think about what the bread and the cup symbolize. And may it be a blessing to you and encouragement to you.